Hello and welcome to National League Town, Mets fandom, Mets history, Mets life, with Long Island's own Greg Prince and Jeff Heisen. Hey, Greg. Greetings from the second half of the season, statistically speaking. We've played more than 81 games, never mind the All-Star break, but we'll welcome it when it comes. On today's show, believe it or not, we say nice things about other teams, but first... It's Wednesday afternoon, and as Long Island's own Jim Steinman said, two out of three ain't bad. No, it's not, Greg. I didn't realize Jim Steinman was from Long Island. That's good to know. No, two out of three ain't bad. And it was paradise by the lights of Truist Park for the Mets these uh, last three days, save for one day. But the Mets indeed won two out of three in what I think is reasonable to have called a must series. The season was going to continue either way, but I didn't want to go to Atlanta and not win the series. Because what has this team been about all year but winning series? That's what we've talked about over and over again. Hey, they haven't lost a series for like two months and a series here, a series there. This is not the team you wanted to lose to. This is the team that is chasing us. I know there is probably a school of thought that says we're chasing them. Want to look at it that way? Fine. Historically meaning since 2018, the Braves have finished first every year. So got to knock the crown off, whatever. Hey, we won Monday. We won today, Wednesday. Can live with two out of three. What was interesting was that Luis Guillorme batted cleanup and Mets Twitter was in a tizzy before the game. It worked out. He had that big RBI. But you noticed something about Guillorme batting cleanup because it gave him a distinction among all of the Mets who were named the utility players of the decade by this podcast. We look out for our own here, Jeff. And regardless of what Mets Twitter or Mets Tizzy was thinking, everybody who has been anointed by this podcast, the Mets utility player of his respective decade, had one thing in common until today. Starting a game for the Mets, none of them, not Rod Keneal, not Teddy Martinez, not Bob Baylor, not Melvin Mora, not Joe McEwing, not Justin Turner, and not Luis Guillorme had ever started a game batting cleanup for the New York Mets. Well, that's over now. Luis Guillorme is a cleanup batter in good stead, right up there with Mike Piazza and Pete Alonso and all the cleanup hitters you can think of. And the Mets are 1-0 and with Luis Guillorme batting cleanup. So you could say he's you know among the most effective cleanup hitters they've ever had. I don't think that's going to be a habit with McNeil and Marte scheduled to come back, if not tomorrow, then by the weekend. Do you? Probably not. We'll see how much Buck wants to ride this particular indicator. I will say that it wasn't like he had a lot of great options. I mean, you could have batted Luis second and Alonzo fourth. Well... He didn't. But maybe this sent a little bit of a message to other prospective cleanup hitters in the Mets lineup who were not asked to bat fourth. Eduardo Escobar, who has had little bursts of power and then kind of gone back into his cocoon, he hit a monstrous home run today. Makes me think he was almost telling his manager, you know, I'm pretty good at hitting home runs usually. You can bat me clean up sometimes. I don't know if Francisco Lindor, who's pretty comfortable where he bats, or Mark Canna, who seems to roll the punches, were thinking that either. 
but they all hit home runs in the finale. And if Luis Guillorme somehow had something to do with that, or it's just one of those marvelous coincidences, so be it. The lineup worked to get us a win. It's just one win, but do you consider it a statement win? It's a statement until tomorrow if they don't win their next game. That's how statement wins are. I don't think the Braves didn't know who the Mets were coming into this. For us, for the fans, I think it's a statement. I think it tells us, okay, we can relax just a little bit. We don't have to rush to Mets tizzy and express our angst as we probably were doing when the Braves cut it from seven to two to seven to three in the ninth inning, let alone losing the game that we had lost. We like wins. Can you blame us? We're fans. We'd like more home runs by everybody and more hits. I mean, the one guy who got my attention as this series went by, and not because he had a home run, but because he hasn't hit any home runs, is Dominic Smith. Dominic Smith is now, I look this up thanks to Baseball References StatHead tool, Dominic Smith now has the 45th longest streak of games with a plate appearance, but without a home run in Mets history. And if you were to look at the numbers, you'd see that like almost everybody in front of him is some combination of Bud Harrelson and Ray Ordonez. Those are the kind of players who play a lot and didn't hit home runs, but you didn't care because they were gold glove middle infielders. You expect a little bit more out of Dom. You expect a little bit more out of Eduardo Escobar. You've expected a little more out of everybody of late. They delivered. That's the statement to me, that they are capable, that they reminded us. And obviously, they pitched really well, especially the starters in this series. And you want a statement? Go shout that from the top of the battery or whatever they call that in Atlanta. While it may not be a statement in terms of a be-all and end-all, I think it's an important win. Two out of three in Atlanta without two starters, two all-stars. I think that says something. I think that was an impressive win, and I think Mets fans should be feeling good about this. There was no excuse to be made now. There was none of that, well, we didn't have Marte, we didn't have McNeil. That happens in the course of a season. They were without Ozzie Albies. Hey, they brought in Robinson Cano. Didn't seem to shake the Mets uh, too badly. So, as you know, as I know, as everybody listening knows, it's a long season. There's going to be days where you don't have this guy or that guy, where the opponent has somebody who's really hot who you'd rather not face. Three games in July, one and a half games separating us when we came in, two and a half games separating us when we go out. It's a good thing. Gary was somewhat concerned about the Cubs series and there being a Mets letdown before the All-Star break. I don't expect that to happen. Let's hope it doesn't. I mean, the Cubs are not doing all that well this year, but they are an opponent. I won't say a formidable opponent, but anybody who you play in the course of a season can beat you. Is it a letdown if the Mets were to split the series in Chicago? I don't know. Go out, play hard, be the team you've been throughout the first half and the little bit that's trickled into the second half, even though we were for generally the first halves as before the All-Star game. Go out on a good note, play well. But I would say that about every series. I'd say it about every game. It was a big series. And yeah, you go from sold out crowds and a lot of energy to I'm sure there'll be people in the stands in Wrigley Field. There always are. But a team that can catch you napping. If you're not careful, I don't expect this team to nap. I don't know that they'll win every game in Chicago. I'd like to think they will. I don't worry about them. They'll they'll take care of themselves. Four games in Chicago and then the All-Star break. Speaking of the All-Star game, the All-Star game is July 19th. And Greg has a devious but interesting thought. Greg? Devious like a fox, Jeff. 
we've got the All-Star game coming up, like you said. And it occurs to me that one night out of the year, we have to make common cause with the teams we spend the rest of the year rooting against. We want them to lose when they play against us. We want them to lose when we're watching the scoreboard. We talk about not only living in a National League town and embodying National League baseball. We love the National League, but we hate almost everybody in it. It's just the way we roll, except for one night of the year, the All-Star game, when we root for the National League team, at least until we start to get a little bored. Maybe we start flipping around, but we're not going to admit that right now. So here was my devious idea, as you put it. Because we have to get behind players wearing uniforms of teams we usually don't like. We, as real baseball fans, as Mets fans, residents of the National League town, if you will, have to root for these guys for one night. We want to succeed as a unit. Let's find something nice to say about every team in the National League as much as we can bear to. Let us show National League solidarity. So we're really going to do this. We say, let's go Mets. We want the Mets to be better than all these teams. But for one night, we're going to be rooting for this Diamondback, that Rocky, that Dodger, so on and so forth. And the beautiful part of this is not only do I have to do this, my friend Jeff, who is also open-minded about many things, but wasn't that open-minded when I asked him, hey, Jeff, can you say nice things about teams you usually hate? He's going to be that way. He's going to come up with some nice things to say about Braves and Phillies and so on. I'm going to come up with some nice things to say about Giants and Padres and Cubs and so on. And then we're going to end the episode by metaphorically washing our hands of the whole thing. But it really happened. You will have evidence of it. So with that stated, with our goal of National League solidarity, I am going to ask my co-host, Jeff Heisen. Jeff, tell me something nice about the Arizona Diamondbacks. November 4th, 2001, that horrible fall. Arizona beats the Yankees in the 2001 World Series in Game 7 as Luis Gonzalez hits the game-winning and series-winning single in the bottom of the ninth inning off of Mariano Rivera. Off of Rivera, which made it an electrifying moment. That is the nicest thing the Arizona Diamondbacks could have done. Now, as I prepared for this, I put together three bullet points for each franchise, and I knew there'd be some overlap, and I had to resist the notion that anybody who ever beat the Yankees gets a nice thing said about them for beating the Yankees, but I couldn't resist. I wrote down 2001 World Series also, but I will give you my specific from the 2001 World Series beyond the fact that the Diamondbacks won it, and I was so excited on November 4th, 2001, that come November 10th, 2001, which was my wedding anniversary, my wife got for me an Arizona Diamondbacks baseball cap that I wore proudly that winter and into the next year. I even went to Shea Stadium when the Mets played the Diamondbacks wearing that cap and a Mets t-shirt and gave everybody on the Arizona Diamondbacks who'd been around from that World Series a nice ovation. And the way I ended the 2001 World Series, other than jumping up and down on a hobbled foot because I had just had some sort of surgery, was by taking out one of my Rhino Have a Nice Day Super Hits of the 70s CDs and playing the earworm, if you will. Mark Lindsay's Arizona, Won't You Take Off Your Rainbow Shades. I played it over and over intermittently with Frank Sinatra's New York, New York, 
which I played in a mocking tone. So the 2001 World Series, I agree. I'm going to throw two more things in there real quick because I'm just stealing your idea basically here. 1998, really even before 1998, I guess it was late 1995 as the Arizona Diamondbacks franchise is coming into existence on paper. They hire young wunderkind manager Buck Showalter, recently fired by the New York Yankees. They got Buck Showalter out of the Bronx. So when we look at Buck Showalter, especially when we looked at him before he came to become our, hopefully, savior, we didn't just have to think of him as a Yankee. We could see him in that Diamondback uniform as well as some of the others he would wear later. And speaking of the Diamondback uniform, I want to salute the throwback uniforms I've seen the Arizona Diamondbacks wear in recent years because it's the uniform they were wearing in 1998 into the early 2000s. And it's probably the only throwback uniform I've seen in baseball that doesn't throw me because when you see, say, when the Mets wore their racing strike uniforms in 2016 on Sundays to salute the 86 team, they looked all wrong. I mean, it was nice to see them, but they were baggy. They were big. It's not how uniforms looked in those days. Basically, no time had passed, at least from my fan perspective, between the Diamondbacks coming into existence and the Diamondbacks deciding to get nostalgic. So I remember watching a Diamondbacks-Mets game, I'm going to say 2019, give or take a year, probably no no earlier than 2018, no later than 2021, because we didn't play them in 2020. They're wearing those sleeveless uniforms, the pinstripes and the purple sleeves. And it's just like, I wasn't like, oh, it's their throwbacks. I was like, oh, it's the Diamondbacks. It's like, oh, that's right. They have a history. They have nostalgia. They can be nostalgic about beating the Yankees. So Arizona Diamondbacks, we are in solidarity with you. You know who else we're in solidarity with because we're doing this? The Colorado Rockies. Jeff, tell me something nice about the Colorado Rockies. There's something you can do in Colorado, besides when you're dead, that you can't do in any other park. And that's going a mile high within the park. I went to Colorado for two games in 2019, saw two Mets wins, and before the game, I got there early, I climbed up the stairs, kept climbing, and there's that demarcation that you see on TV, and I thought, yeah, this is as good as I thought it was going to be. In Colorado, you can get a mile high. They love to get high in Colorado, no doubt about it. You know, another way of getting high in Colorado, getting a nice little beer buzz on. Uh, I was in Colorado the very first year of Coors Field. And in my past, I covered the beverage industry for a magazine that was doing a cover story on Coors Brewing of Golden, Colorado. And let me tell you, the folks at Coors Brewing couldn't have been nicer to me. And one of the things they did was take me to the ballpark for which they had the naming rights, Coors Field. And part of the Coors Field experience, especially in 1995, was a visit behind the scenes, because I had access, to the Sandlot Brewery, which was the first in-house brewery at a ballpark. There may be others since then, but Sandlot was a game changer in that regard. It was a game changer for me because I'm not really much of a beer drinker, and I'm not one of those people who grabs a beer at the game. But let me tell you, I had the freshest, most jubilant glass of beer of my life in the back at Sandlot Brewery coming off the line. It was a wheat beer. It was summer. It was perfect. And while I believe I maintained my professionalism that night, I had a nice buzz going for several innings, which maybe talks to the potency of a nice, fresh beer. 
So we enjoyed responsibly. We enjoyed the Rockies game that night. And that's what I think of when I think of the Colorado Rockies at their best. And when I think of Coors Field, here, I'll throw a second thing at you. I think of how, to use an overworked phrase, they got it right. They were the first in the National League to go throwback. Camden Yards had come along, Cleveland and Texas had come along, but the National League was welcomed into this ballpark revolution by Coors Field, not just in the purple row, as they say, but right there in the middle of downtown. And what I really like about Coors Field in retrospect is it had hints of Ebbets Field, not a total fetish job like a certain other ballpark I could name, but in 1995, it was not a cliche to borrow from a previous ballpark from well in the past and bring it back to life. And so the whole look, the whole vibe that Coors Field had right in the middle of downtown revitalizing a section where I visited a few years on another piece of business and it wasn't that exciting. It just had a great feel to it. And one more for the Colorado Rockies. I want to salute them because they make statistics interesting because you can't talk about Todd Hilton as a possible Hall of Famer, and you couldn't talk about Larry Walker as a possible Hall of Famer before he was voted in by not taking into account the effects of playing a mile high in the air, playing in this elevation, the crazy things it's done to baseballs, the crazy things it's done to scores, and the crazy things it did to RBI totals. And while you're always like throwing that grain of salt in when you're talking about the Colorado Rockies, it's different. It uh, it makes it you know makes it a horse race. I was about to say, but this is baseball, so. It makes it a ball game. It makes it kind of fun. For that, I feel and will declare solidarity for the All-Star game with the Colorado Rockies. Now, so far, we've done two relatively recent, certainly to us, expansion teams. We're going to go for a team we probably are in sort of, eh, we don't have that big an opinion on the Diamondbacks or Rockies when something great isn't happening or something terrible isn't happening. The next team, we're not that crazy about. I know it. But we're going to find something nice to say about the Los Angeles Dodgers. This is a recent event. On June 18th, they unveiled the Sandy Koufax statue. And at that time, the owner of the Dodgers, Mark Walter, as they unveiled the statue and the Schmata left the statue for the unveiling, said, when you're great on and off the field, this is one of the things that happens to you. It took a long time because Sandy Koufax retired in 1966, but this is a monumental event, and for more on it, I'm going to post a link in our Twitter feed, an article by Brian Fishback from the Los Angeles Jewish Journal about the Sandy Koufax statue. That's my good thing about the Dodgers. You can't get better about the Dodgers than Sandy Koufax. Going through life as someone who writes about baseball, if I bring it up to certain people, I mean, I don't even explain what it is in any depth. Oh, yeah, I write about baseball. Often enough, you'd be surprised how often this happens. The first two words out of their mouth are Sandy Koufax. They are carrying around some memory of having seen Sandy Koufax, having crossed paths with Sandy Koufax, and they just want to celebrate Sandy Koufax. And the Dodgers were absolutely right to celebrate that lefty. I'm going to celebrate another lefty, Fernando Valenzuela, specifically Fernando Mania, that swept through baseball-loving America in 1981. It was so exciting to watch this kid come out of virtually nowhere. Actually, he came out of Mexico. He'd had a brief spurt at the end of 1980 as an unknown rookie, helped them in the pennant race, eventually helped them win a World Series against, by the way, the Yankees. But I'm not even here for that. I'm here because 
Fernando was such a breath of fresh air. And yeah, he won a Cy Young Award that could have been given to Tom Seaver of the Cincinnati Reds. And eh, I don't know about that choice. But uh, I always loved what Fernando brought to the mound, what he brought to baseball. He was both innocent and wise at the same time. And it was captivating. I was at Shea Stadium the night 1981 when the Fernando Valenzuela World Tour pulled into town. And while I was a little annoyed that there were a lot of people rooting for the Dodgers that night, I could certainly understand the attraction. And I remember they used to do a thing in a certain inning in those days, the magic moment where they would give out, say, boxes of Cracker Jack to everybody in a particular section. That night, they gave out tortilla chips for Fernando Valenzuela. So it was a, a fun time. Also a fun time before I decided I hated the Dodgers was circa 1974, the coming together of that team that kept that infield together forever. And the infielder who anchored it was Steve Garvey. For some reason, as a kid, I had a little bit of a fascination with Steve Garvey before he became good. He was a third baseman and he played a lousy third base. And the Dodgers, up to a certain point, had been one of those teams like the Mets that could never get a third baseman in place. But eventually they got Ron Say, the Penguin, to play third base. They moved Steve Garvey to first base. Steve Garvey became the MVP that year, the the All-American boy. I don't know, something about him when I was 11 years old just really appealed to me, even though he wasn't a Met. And I get really excited when I saw his face on a magazine cover. I can still see him on the cover of Baseball Digest. And I really liked that Dodger team for a while, probably because before they got Tom Seaver, I didn't really care for the red. <laughs> so uh, I, I welcomed the Dodgers back to prominence for a little while, rooted for them in three World Series, none of which they won in the 70s, and said to them in 1981, could you at least do this for us? Could you at least beat the Yankees? And they did. So I, I appreciate the Garvey years. Joe Posnanski has a way of putting down Steve Garvey in Hall of Fame debates. He says, people think Steve Garvey's a future Hall of Famer because when he played, everybody referred to him that way. And then he goes and shows you statistics and says Steve Garvey wasn't really as good as you remember. I want to remember Steve Garvey as that good. Where he plied his trade, where Fernando plied his trade, where Sandy Koufax plied his trade, Dodger Stadium. Uh, what I'll say about Dodger Stadium is something that many have said before, but it can't be said enough. 1962, they built a ballpark, not a stadium, even though it's called Dodger Stadium. They made it baseball only, baseball specific. And as is said, every time the Mets pull into Chavez Ravine, it looks as good now as it did then. And even though they've targeted it up a bit, it's still one of the crown jewels of, of baseball and certainly the National League. And even though uh, they've contained some characters we, we haven't been crazy about, especially those who've uh, slid into second base in recent years, for this occasion, I stand in solidarity with you, Los Angeles Dodgers. And I'm going to move down the coast a little bit now, and I'm going to ask you what you have to say in a nice way about the San Diego Padres. Tony Gwynn was a great player. May he rest in peace. There's a Tony Gwynn statue in front of Petco Park made by William Behrens, who also made the Seaver statue. If you go a little further away, the waterfront, there is a art piece, which is a depiction of Tony Gwynn. And it's funky and it's cool. That's a good way to describe Tony Gwynn. What a great player. I have nothing but the highest regard for him and what he accomplished. So that's my good thing about the Padres. Amen to Tony Gwynn, one of the class acts of the National League in his day and for all time. 
I'm going to thank Tony Gwynn and all his 1984 San Diego Padre teammates for something very specific. For beating the Chicago Cubs in the 1984 National Championship Series, they were down 2-0. I never liked the Cubs. We'll work through that in a moment. You know, we beat them in 69, and when it became us and them in 84, I relied on a chestnut. Well, the Cubs never win, and we always beat them when it counts, which was 1969, basically. But the Cubs surpassed us in 1984, and I was still pretty angry about it, and they went up two games to none in the best-of-five NLCS. And I was just saying, well, okay, the Cubs, they haven't won anything since 1945 until now. I guess a Tigers-Cubs World Series would be good for baseball, and we'd all get a kick out of it, and they'd have to figure out how to play games for television because there are no lights in Wrigley Field. The Padres storm back. Steve Garvey helped the Padres storm back, won the game, I believe, uh, game four on a Saturday night. And then a first baseman named Leon Durham, who had replaced Bill Buckner on the Cubs, let the ball go through his legs at first base, uh, opened up what became uh, the decisive rally. So the Padres would go on to get their clock cleaned by the Detroit Tigers, but that's neither here nor there. So I'll always appreciate that the San Diego Padres spared us from the Chicago Cubs long before I was ready to see them in the World Series. I will always be grateful that the San Diego Padres at the time played in a structure named Jack Murphy Stadium. Jack Murphy, brother of Bob Murphy. Bob Murphy, the announcer we cherish Above all others, certainly nobody ever more. And to have Bob Murphy have the opportunity to go into San Diego twice a year and talk about his brother and be reminded how important Jack was to the community of San Diego. He was a sports writer. He led the way to bring big time sports, to bring the Padres to San Diego and then to honor him as such. I mean, that's like honoring Bill Shea for bringing National League Baseball back to New York. So I always thought that was the, the best of gestures, the best of players. Before Tony Gwynn and, say, after Nate Colbert, who was basically the only Padre I remember from when I was a kid, I went to a game in 1979. It was high school newspaper night at Shea Stadium. Sometimes I feel like I'm still living in high school newspaper night. <laughs> I cover the Mets these days as a blogger. But uh, that night, the Mets invited us. Uh, there were plenty of good seats available, as they say, in May of 1979. Invited us to check out the press box to have a, a little talk with uh, some notables. One of them was Bob Murphy, by the way, and to watch the Mets play the Padres. I was going to say lose to the Padres, and they did, but I don't think that was the idea. But this is what I want to single out about the 1979 Padres that I saw at Shea Stadium. Gaylord Perry started. Ozzie Smith played short. Dave Winfield was in right field and Raleigh Fingers closed. I got to see four Hall of Famers that night at Shea Stadium. Unfortunately, they weren't wearing Mets uniforms, but you can't have everything. 10-5 Padres, oh well. But hey, here I am talking about it more than 40 years later, all this immortality on one field. So for that experience, and uh, for a couple of others, I forge common cause, I have solidarity with the San Diego Padres. And we're going to close out the National League West by staying in California, heading north, going to find out about the San Francisco Giants. This one's an easy one, Greg. Greg and I could spend hours talking about Willie Mays. Now, I've been to the ballpark in San Francisco, 
And it, the view is great. They show it to you during every game. But I think the ballpark's overrated because of the cramped corridors. But I will recognize that they have a Willie Mays statue at 24 Willie Mays Plaza, which is the main entrance to the ballpark. Greg and I have said that the Mets should do more to recognize Willie, including retiring his number. So it's great that the Giants are doing what the Mets are not. And by the way, if you only are thinking about Willie's tenure with the Mets in 73, you're ignoring his importance in New York baseball history. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the Giants and what they have done in recognizing Willie Mays. So that's my good thing about the Giants. None of my three bullet points are specific to Willie Mays because I had a feeling you would go in some Willie Mays direction. And that's a good direction to go in. I'm going to talk about the San Francisco Giants' embrace of their New York history and not just in some fleeting, yeah, we'll put up a poster somewhere. When the Giants won their three World Series in the 2010s, which it still seems hard to believe, A, that they won three World Series in five years because they were never what felt like a classic dynasty, and B, that they had never won one in San Francisco. They brought their trophies to New York, not in an obnoxious way. They checked with the Mets and they checked with the other team in New York to make sure it was cool. And they shared them with a group that I'm a member of, the New York Giants Preservation Society. And there was another one, the New York Giants Nostalgia Society. There have been a lot of names for groups of people who still cherish the Giants in New York. And the Giants are aware of us. And they're aware that there just happened to be a lot of San Francisco expatriates in New York, not that they're really my cause, but they shared it publicly with them as well. Everything about the way they did it was classy. Everything about the way they conduct their history vis-a-vis -vis New York is classy. They have something called the Gotham Club there for your season ticket holders, your high rollers, and it celebrates the Giants' roots in the 19th century, even though maybe you're not going to sell a lot of tickets to San Franciscans based on that it's still a hell of a marker. A hell of a mark for the Giants was their closer a while ago named Mark Melanson, who's pitched for every team, it seems, except the Mets. But when he got to the Giants, he kind of hoped it would be his home. He, he's better than a journeyman, but he had a, quite a journey. So he comes to San Francisco in 2017, and he tells management, I'd like to know more about the New York Giants. Who? I don't know how many players do that, but Mark Melanson actually was interested. He wanted to be a giant for life in his mind. So they brought him out to the former site of the Polo Grounds, so the restored John T. Brush stairway near Coogan's Bluff. And the Giants, being the Giants, invited our historically inclined group. And if you go Google some of this, you can see it was written up in, in a number of places. And it was just a, such a fantastic gesture to make both to history, to the player in question, to people who cared about this stuff. So this is the overall umbrella under which the Giants operate when we're not playing them, I think is fantastic. Uh, I thought fantastic in the modern era was Buster Posey, who had, I'm going to use this word again, a very classy career that has recently ended, won those three world championships, rookie of the year, MVP. I think he's got a hell of a Hall of Fame case. And I, I think what really gets me is that his career started after Shea Stadium closed and it's already over and he's in retirement with enough time to be in the Hall of Fame, showing you how time can pass. But one thing that's remained timeless, last thing I'll say on behalf of the San Francisco Giants, orange and black is a great combination. 
even if orange and blue is our combination of choice. I mean, from the time I had baseball cards as a kid, I love looking at giant uniforms and I want the Mets in the World Series this year. I want the Mets in the World Series every year. But between you and me, an Orioles-Giants World Series between the ballparks and the uniforms would be a feast for the eyes. So I will figure out who I'll root for when that day comes. But for now, I say I am solid. I am solid in my solidarity with you, San Francisco Giants, as we close out the National League West portion of this discussion and we head east through the middle of America. We come to the National League Central. And since we're doing this in alphabetical order, Jeff, we're going to the north side of Chicago. Tell me something nice about the Chicago Cubs. Oh, there's so many things I could talk about. I don't know where to begin. How about the 1969 collapse when Leo DeRocher pushed his team so hard that his aging veterans got tired because he played them every game? And Ron Santo clicked his heels after the wins, and that became less frequent as the Mets passed them. How about 1973? Because that's where the Mets clinched the NL East title. They had a doubleheader. They could have won either game. They won the first game. The second game wasn't even played because the Mets won the 73 National League East title in Chicago. Or how about 2015? Because that's where the Mets finished a four-game sweep to win the NLCS. An embarrassment of riches from Chicago. Indeed. They still resent us for 1969. It doesn't matter that they've won a World Series since then. They are still mad that they cannot hold a lead over the Mets in 1969. Granted, this is not recent evidence, but I was there in 1998. I'm on the L train heading to Wrigley Field, meet up with a friend of mine, and I'm wearing a Mets cap. And I'm getting, I'll say good-natured, but I think there's a little bit of an edge to it. But I'm getting grief from people around me because they hate the Mets. Because we did it to them in 1969, and no matter what else happened along the way, including 1984 and 1989, and eventually 1998, we'll always have 1969 over them. They'll always have Wrigley Field, which, especially when we were growing up, Wrigley Field was the point of difference on the Mets' schedule. Everything about it was unique and amazing to watch those day games, and they were only day games. It's amazing to be told about the wind blowing out to Waveland Avenue. doesn't seem like you have those Wrigley Field-style games anymore. I don't know if all the building they've done around there has changed the trajectories, but you would just suddenly get an 11-9 to game, and you didn't have to be a mile above uh, the ocean, as was the case in uh, Denver. You know what I really feel good about when it comes to Chicago Cubs? I'm going to throw a date at you that's not going to resonate for too many people. July 20th, 2016. And this is the year after the Mets had won the pennant at Wrigley Field. That was the day we had a memorial service for my father, who died a week earlier. One of the things I always talk about in becoming a Mets fan was the impact my father had, who was not a big Mets fan, not a big baseball fan at all. I don't want to uh, oversell his case. When I was six and when I was seven, he'd bring home the New York Post afternoon paper at the time, not owned by Rupert Murdoch, so you could look forward to it. And... It had partial scores on the back, so there were always scores from Wrigley Field. It had a sports cartoon on the back of the Mets and the Cubs going at it, the Mets as a duck and the Cubs as a bear. And it had statistics. It had all the things that got me into caring about the Mets as much as anything. So I've always connected my father to the Mets and the Cubs and 69 and 70 when the Mets and Cubs battled it out only to have the Pirates surpass them. And to 2015 because my father was ill 
in the fall of 2015, and we watched playoff games together. And the night they won the pennant, my father called me. You gotta understand, my father was not particularly lucid those last months, but it was just so crystal clear with him. Well, Greg, the Mets won the pennant. That's really something. It's like it just penetrated with him. He knew how much it meant to me, and that's this part means a lot to me. So July 20th, we have his memorial service. Who are the Mets playing that afternoon? They're playing the Cubs at Wrigley Field. And the beauty part was they were wearing throwback uniforms. The Cubs decided to celebrate 1988, the year that they brought lights to Wrigley Field. So they wore what looked like their uniforms from the late 80s, which isn't too far off of what they wear today. The Mets hauled out the uh, the racing stripe, except the, the road version. I love to tell you, and the Mets won, but they didn't. But they didn't have to. I felt like the Cubs were somehow sending up a salute to my father at that moment. I felt very close to them, and I could not hate them any longer. I'm not saying I root for them when they played the Mets. Of course not. But when they won the World Series a few months later, whereas I think, say, if it had happened in 2003, the year of Steve Bartman, I wouldn't have enjoyed it as much or wouldn't have enjoyed it at all unless they were playing the Yankees. I could no longer root against the Cubs in a situation like that just out of spite driven from 1969. So when they did win, I said, because I, again, I have a friend who is a big Cleveland Indians fan, Cleveland Guardians fan today. I felt bad for him. I felt bad for the people of Cleveland. But I felt good for the people who had, as they say, suffered with the Cubs all those years. I felt a little something for them. And I appreciate that they scheduled the game that they did. And it was an afternoon game on July 20th, 2016. So for that, something I never thought I'd say as a kid, I give you my solidarity. Chicago Cubs. Another team that I found myself rooting for on and off, and we'll get into that in a bit, but I want to hear from you. Jeff, what do you got to say about the Cincinnati Reds? Well, it certainly isn't their mascots, Mr. and Mrs. Mets wannabes posers, but Cincinnati is where Pee Wee Reese, a native of nearby Louisville, or Louisville, allegedly put his arm around Jackie Robinson in front of a hostile crowd. Now, where it happened, exactly what he did, is subject to debate. But let's not get the facts get in the way of a great story. And that Pee Wee Reese put his arm around Jackie Robinson to some extent somewhere and calmed down a hostile crowd. And that most likely happened in Cincinnati. Crosley Field, one of the great moments in baseball history that doesn't show up in the box score. Riverfront Stadium succeeded Crosley Field in 1970. 1977, Cincinnati Reds got my attention beyond just being the big red machine and winning World Series, and they got my attention in an unwanted way because on June 15th of that year, they made a trade for a right-handed pitcher from the New York Mets who wore number 41. So for the next few seasons, my second favorite team in the National League, not that I really had one before, was nominally the Cincinnati Reds. I had a Cincinnati Reds baseball cap at some point, and I had a t-shirt uh, excavated from Shea Stadium that said Cincinnati 41. But Tom Seaver was my interest in the Cincinnati Reds. Eventually, we got Tom Seaver back, and I was glad to have him. And you would have figured that Reds chapter was just a dark interregnum in the history of baseball. Well, 2006, Great American Ballpark, which succeeded Riverfront Stadium, which succeeded Crosley Field. The Reds do what they do very well. They were saluting their history. They have a great museum and hall of fame there, probably the best in baseball, and they are diligent about inducting members. And in 2006, they inducted Tom Seaver into the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame. You could say, oh, he only had six years. He only won 75 games for them. 
they recognized how important it was that Tom Seaver wore 41 for them, that he was their ace. He pitched a no-hitter for them. He pitched them into the National League playoffs in 1979. Any team that recognizes greatness has got to be pretty good itself. So that alone is fantastic. I think it's fantastic where Great American Ballpark is located. It's right across the river from Kentucky, home state of Pee Wee Reese. And I just think it's amazing you can go to a game and see another state right across the river. And I want to say this for Cincinnati. It's the epitome of a good baseball town. Based on my experience, which I grant you was one weekend in 2003, people just love to talk baseball to you. They love to talk about the team that you were there to see, kind of jibe with you that, oh, hey, you guys aren't going to get us tonight or whatever. I remember... A bunch of us worked on the trivia question on the scoreboard. They have that opening day parade that they take very seriously. I thought it was unnecessary when baseball started doing Sunday night openers and all that stuff to take away the traditional opener from Cincinnati. They love baseball, and I like that. So despite what Pete Rose did to Bud Harrelson in 1973 and various and sundry other uh, crimes against Metmanity, shall we say, I offer solidarity with the Cincinnati Reds. And this would not have been necessary if we were having this discussion before 1998, but why we would be having a discussion for a podcast when there were no podcasts before 1998, I'm not sure. Uh, We're going to talk about the Milwaukee Brewers of the National League. Jeff, what you got? The sausage races. I like them. It's not the crappy copycat one in Washington, which Nationals fans salivate over. And if you ever go to a game with me in Nationals Park, you will see me avert my eyes because I don't even want to recognize that that monstrosity is happening. The one in Milwaukee, that's cool. I like it. Averting your eyes from the wannabe sausage race is a perfect expression of disdain for a team that you're going to have to say something nice about a little later. Milwaukee Brewers, even though they kind of got in our way once for a wild card that we should have grabbed in 2008, are not a team that, let's face it, is going to summon really strong emotions for a Mets fan. They did help us out uh, down the stretch in 1999 by knocking off the Reds a couple of times. Hey, maybe I should have picked that. I'm going to pick something that will probably surprise you a little bit. The 2018 postseason, I just got, really got into the Brewers for a few weeks. Their tiebreaker versus the Cubs, who apparently my good feelings for them from 2016 wore off. Their sweep of the Rockies in the NLDS, two unlikely teams. And then their seven-game battle with the Dodgers that didn't work out. All told, I think it was the last time I was really and truly into a non-Mets team postseason journey. That included the 12 straight wins, regular season and postseason, that meant free hamburgers from George Webb, a hamburger joint in Wisconsin that I never heard of, but I read, hey, guess what? If they win 12 in a row, he gives free hamburgers to everybody. I'm like, well, I got to win 12 in a row. And I just love jumping on that bandwagon for no apparent reason, because that's what October can be sometimes when you can't have an October of your own. I sat and I listened to Bob Euchre, Jeff Levering, and I swear to you, four different sausage companies that's sponsored their broadcasts. Brewers Radio in 2018 was literally a sausage party. It was like insurance companies on the Mets broadcast. A couple other things. Uh, The Brewers, they were in the American League at the time. They retired number 44 for Henry Aaron, even though he was only a Brewer for a couple of years and was not at his best because he'd been a great Milwaukee Brave. Take note, New York Mets vis-a-vis number 24 and Willie Mays. And even though it's not there anymore, County Stadium, to use my mother's phrase, was so Hamish 
It was so homey. It felt so right to watch a baseball game there. From the tailgating outside to the bratwurst available inside, everything is sausage on the Brewers. But you know what? You got to treat yourself once in a while. And right now we will treat ourselves to solidarity with the Milwaukee Brewers. And now we're going to go not only to Pennsylvania, but to a team that we used to, I think, consider a bit of a rival because they used to be in the National League East. But they're in the Central now, and they are at the confluence of the Allegheny and Monongahela to form the mighty Ohio. Uh, You know who I'm talking about. Jeff, what do you like about the Pittsburgh Pirates? This one you cannot possibly match, Greg. My godson is a research and development fellow for the Pirates. That's all I got. You know, surprisingly, my godson is also a research and development fellow for the Pittsburgh <laughs> Pirate. No, I do not have a godson. That is uh, that is something I cannot match. What I've got is not nearly as unexpected, but I'm going to go with, start with one of the great Pirates, somebody who I didn't think I realized was such a compelling figure until I was compelled to read a book called Cobra, written by Dave Jordan and the title character. Dave Parker. Dave Parker was a hell of a baseball player in the 70s and the 80s into the 90s. Didn't just play with the Pirates, but came up with the Pirates, excelled as a Pirate, tells an incredible life story with the help of Dave Jordan, who is a friend of mine, by the way. So you can take that uh, with, with a grain of whatever they put on their pierogies in Pittsburgh. But I recommend Cobra, which came out last year, if, if you like understanding what goes through a baseball player's mind what his journey is like, especially the Pittsburgh years. I think I went into the process of reading this by thinking, yeah, I guess Dave Parker could be in the Hall of Fame. I came out of it thinking, why isn't Dave Parker in the Hall of Fame? I don't want to make this a Hall of Fame debate, but uh, just fascinating person, fascinating story, and a great career. And I guess I'm not totally surprised I would feel some simpatico, because I had an experience in 2004 when I was moving and I'd had my baseball cards in shoeboxes from my childhood and they hadn't really been disturbed since I moved into my previous residence in 1992 but it was like you know what I gotta do something I can't just keep these in shoeboxes and rubber bands that are breaking forever so I started unpacking my baseball cards to repack them I'm just like dwelling on my pirates and I was just like god I like this team they were my October team and didn't always root for them, but I, they always felt at home. I always felt at home with them in October. And then it was Three Rivers Stadium, which wasn't the prettiest ballpark in the world. But they were such a fun team to watch. The Lightning and Lumber Company, they would be known as enough pitching, a lot of hitting, and a couple of world championships that I thought were breathtaking. And there was no pirate more breathtaking. And I I count myself as lucky that I was a baseball fan of enough of an age to have seen him and appreciated him. Roberto Clemente, living on his legacy, that is, living on in the Roberto Clemente Bridge, which if you watch a game from PNC Park, your eye is drawn to it immediately. Everything about PNC Park, whether it's on television or in person, is brilliant. Nothing was better than renaming, I believe it's the 6th Street Bridge originally, the Roberto Clemente Bridge. We should all cross the Roberto Clemente Bridge to greatness and to humanity of what he represented and what everybody who knew him and influenced by him still talks about. And boy, if you have somebody like that personifying your franchise, you're doing all right. So solidarity, it is yours. Pittsburgh Pirates. The last National League Central team to whom we offer solidarity, we're going to brush our teeth first. We're going to spit it out because we're going to be spitting out the nice things we have to say about the St. Louis Cardinals. 
What do you got, Jeff? Yadier Molina. Yes, I know about 2006. I was fortunate enough to go to spring training in 2018, 2019, and as long as I could in 2020. And where I stayed was closer to Jupiter where the Cardinals train than to Port St. Lucie. So I would go to Mets games in Jupiter, and I would also go see Mets games in Port St. Lucie. And wherever the Mets played the Cardinals, which was frequent, as you know, Yadier Molina would show up. And at first, why is he playing? And the Cardinals fans, with their earnestness, that it's annoying Cardinal fan behavior, would cheer him so much, and I couldn't stand it. But then there was one day, it was a hot spring training game in Port St. Lucie, and Yadier Molina didn't have to show up. He's a star. He didn't have to leave the confines of Jupiter. Remember, there was a famous Yankee, who we don't want to mention, who wasn't even issued a road jersey in spring training because they knew he would never play a road game. But Yadier Molina schlepped all the way from Jupiter to Port St. Lucie to catch a pitcher he wasn't comfortable with on a hot day. And I said, now I get it. That's greatness. That's dedication. I haven't forgotten about 2006, but at that moment, I realized something positive about Yadier Molina. I think Yadier Molina's career has been a growth experience for him. I think this exercise when it comes to Yadier Molina was a growth experience for you. I'd like to think I've grown a little and, and not just from all those bratwursts in Milwaukee. Watching the St. Louis Cardinals of Yadier Molina and Adam Wainwright for what feels like forever, cursing them both out from 2006, as you mentioned, but God, coming to respect them so much year in, year out, every time they play the Mets, you know, I want them to fail miserably. They don't usually. And now they are hanging them up, as they say. I salute that you are saluting that. I am going to salute the Cardinal way as much as that kind of makes us cringe. They take that stuff seriously. You know, Yadier Molina is an avatar of that sort of thing. So that's the way that they develop their players, learning how to play the game. A man you probably have heard of if you listen closely out in the world, George Kissel, big time instructor for years with the St. Louis Cardinals. They all sing his praises. Joe McEwing is one of those who sings the praises of George Kissel. When we talked about Super Joe McEwing being the avatar, use that word again, of utility men for the Mets, you know, that's the Cardinal Way impact. That's George Kissel's impact. I also want to say the Cardinal Way was the name of a fine book. Another friend of mine, Howard Megdal, wrote back when it seemed the Cardinals would never lose. And I'm glad he got the uh, the book deal when he did because the Cardinals haven't won a World Series lately. There is something to admire even if you, if you don't embrace it. And that goes for their history, too. The fact that their museum, I love this, their museum not only celebrates the St. Louis Cardinals, they celebrate the St. Louis Browns, who left town to not a lot of weeping, one would imagine, based on their attendance in the early 1950s. And yet you go to St. Louis, you'll hear about the Browns, you'll learn about the Browns, you'll learn about the Negro League teams. And it reflects a general appreciation, a genuine appreciation of their history right up to the present. Through their owner, Bill DeWitt, who I remember looking at distance and thinking, why can't we have somebody like that owning the Mets when, when they opened the newest incarnation of the museum? And maybe we do have somebody like that owning the Mets now. I will close my Cardinal portion with when I first came to really get to know them in the 1970s. You know what I loved about the Cardinals of the 1970s? They were nothing special. They never won. They competed a couple of years. They were finishing in fourth place a lot or they were pulling up short in second place. And you know what that meant? I didn't have to hate them. And I could really like Lou Brock. I could really respect, if not love, Bob Gibson. 
And I can have nothing much against Keith Hernandez. Should there be a chance in the decade after that Keith Hernandez will somehow enter our lives? So for being the St. Louis Cardinals on a good day, shall we say, we declare solidarity with the St. Louis Cardinals, which would have been a lot more painful if the St. Louis Cardinals were still a National League East. And let me tell you something, the pain is going to come now because we're entering the National League East. And because we're going in alphabetical order, we're stopping off in the one place where I don't think we normally have anything nice to say. We're going to Atlanta or Cobb County, north of Atlanta, however they delineate it. We're going to talk about the Atlanta Braves. Jeff, say something nice about the Atlanta Braves. I can do so. I visited Atlanta, visited the ballpark, saw the Mets win two games in one day. And this is something I'm going to touch on in two of the four teams remaining. The museum of the Braves history is inside the ballpark, but it's accessible. And it's more accessible than the one at City Field. One at City Field, as we've discussed, you might not even pass it if you go in a different entrance other than the Jackie Robinson Rotunda. But in Atlanta, their museum is in the corridor. So you can walk through the ballpark and you will see the statue of Hank Aaron. There's another statue. And the 755 bat shaped to the number 755. You will see all the Braves uniforms throughout their history, including from Boston. I was really impressed with their museum and where it was located. That's my good thing about Atlanta. Well, that's a very good thing. And I got a hint of that at Turner Field years ago that they actually care about those things. And I'm glad to know that even though we don't really want the Atlanta Braves to have any more history to be proud of, that they are proud of their history. I'm going to have to go back a ways before the National League East to when the Braves were just in the National League before there were divisions, so I wasn't aware of it at the time. I'm going to 1967, the second year of the Atlanta Braves, and my first baseball cards, at least the first ones I remember having and holding, inheriting them, if you will, from my sister who was losing interest rapidly in whatever drew her to buy baseball cards. First card I can remember is a 1967 Joe Torre, catcher for the Atlanta Braves. There was something about the Braves cap, the red bill, the navy dome, the white A. I just really liked as a little kid. And every time I see a 1967 baseball card, it doesn't have to be Joe Torrey's. It doesn't have to be somebody as laden with history as Joe Torrey. I always kind of smile and say, and even though it's the same one that they would bring back later and we would associate it with teams we didn't love, I just like the concept of the 1967 Atlanta Braves on baseball cards. There's 1982 when the Braves were in the National League West, so they weren't in our faces that often. I was in college at the time in Florida, which did not have any kind of a major league team. So the closest one was the Atlanta Braves. And where I was, there was a radio station that carried Atlanta Braves games. And I was desperate for baseball to be in my ear because I no longer had the Mets. And this was before MLB.com and all that stuff. I listened to Atlanta Braves baseball for four years, especially the first couple of years. I listened to Dale Murphy. Dale Murphy became quite possibly my favorite non-Met I've ever had. And Joe Torrey, bringing him back after his, uh, not only his appearance on that baseball card, but he, all his time as Met manager, they had hired him to manage the Braves. The Braves get off to this 13-0 and start, and I'm just taken with them in a way. I don't know that to that point I'd been taken with any National League team that wasn't the Mets. The Mets were 
having a first a hopeful and then a dreadful year. So it didn't really matter that I found myself concentrating on this Cinderella story because the Braves hadn't been any good either for years. By the time September became October, I was absolutely enmeshed in the fortunes of the Atlanta Braves. And they won on the last day of the season, Dale Murphy, Bob Horner, Phil Necro, who certainly deserved a World Series. They went on to play Keith Hernandez and St. Louis Cardinals and were swept, which is another story. But I have a soft spot forever for the Braves of that era. They they were blue-tinged uniforms in those days, so I don't have to put them together with the Braves teams that we came after 1995 to say, oh my God, I hate the Braves. But I'm going to say something nice about the Atlanta Braves of the National League East. And it's based solely on the fact that I happened to be in Atlanta one weekend in 2001. It was the weekend they traded John Rocker. And you could hear the entire city of Atlanta breathe a sigh of relief and say good riddance. They didn't like him either. Now you could say, hey, they cheered for him in the first place. And they rode his right arm to a National League pennant in 1999 that we didn't appreciate. But at least they had the decency to not say, oh, good old Georgia boy, how dare you trade him? People weren't crazy about John Rocker, and I will always respect the fact that when Henry Aaron was in the front office, and you can say nothing bad about Henry Aaron, when Henry Aaron was in the front office of the Atlanta Braves, he made it a point to sit down with John Rocker and say, in so many words, what's wrong with you? (laughs) Do better. And I don't know that John Rocker ever did, but for uh, one weekend in 2001, the Braves did better. They got rid of him. So that's all the solidarity I've got for the Atlanta Braves. It's a tough year to have solidarity for the Atlanta Braves It's a tough time anytime to say anything nice about the Miami Marlins or, for that matter, the Florida Marlins. But we're going to try. Jeff, what you got about the Marlins for me? My one visit to a regular season Marlins game in Miami, April 27th, 2015. And that's a good year. Plenty of good seats available. Mets 3, Miami 1. Dylan G battles Jared Cossart. Dylan G is removed from the game, down one nothing. Carlos Torres comes in, throws one pitch to get out of a jam, and he gets the win because the next inning, Daniel Murphy hits a three-run homer. I remember texting with Greg as it was happening. It was fantastic. Time of the game, ready for this? One hour and 58 minutes. I got right out of the parking lot, back onto 95 before the postgame show even began. It was a great night of Mets baseball, great night overall. That's my good thing about Miami. Less than two hours. Are you sure this didn't take place in 1915? The Miami Marlins, the best thing you could say about them is the Mets beat them this one time. The Mets beat the Marlins more often than we suspect. We don't want to believe it because the Marlins beat the Mets a couple of times that we have a hard time forgetting. The Marlins beat another New York team once. I didn't know if this would be on the table still, but... Hey, let's enjoy the 2003 World Series. (laughs) Let's enjoy the Marlins beating the mighty Yankees in six games. Let's especially enjoy they did it when Jack McKeon threw Josh Beckett on three days rest to seal the World Series. It didn't work for Yogi Berra in 1973 with his ace, Tom Seaver, but it worked for the Marlins. And I was very much a Marlins fan for six games. Let's put it that way. You know what I like about the Marlins and their existence, despite not really wanting them to exist. (laughs) They brought teal to baseball, and they've tried a few aesthetic things that are whimsical. We can always use a little whimsy. I like the structure in center field, the Red Grooms sculpture that would go off when a Marlin hit a home run. And I 
liked the weird lime green walls when they moved into that dome. And I liked the teal uniforms. I liked the accents, certainly, when they were winning the World Series in 1997, which I have to admit, I didn't hate that they won that year, even though they took the wild card from the Mets. Jim Leland at least got a, a world championship for his troubles. So I think the other thing I would say is on some bizarre level, and this will come back to haunt me, I would like the Marlins to somehow not beat the Mets, not be better than the Mets. I really would like it if they would just like be a legitimate major league entity for a few years at a time and not just be this team that we're always looking at and say, ugh, why are they even there? I guess this comes from time that I spent in South Florida when I was younger. My parents had a place in Allendale, uh, which is somewhere between Fort Lauderdale and Miami. And, you know, they had football down there and then they brought basketball down there. So it was nice to know that baseball was coming. They always talked about what a great baseball market it could be, given that you had people from Latin America who loved baseball and you had seniors who loved baseball. Not that we would understand what that was about. And maybe they would grow a team. And, yeah, you would have lots of Mets fans showing up because a lot of New Yorkers uh, in South Florida. Yeah, I want to beat them, and I don't particularly want them to do well. But there's some world in which the Marlins could at least appear stable and not have stupid ownership over and over again. And I would like them to just be another team, hopefully a team the Mets would beat. And that is my solidarity, all I can manage for the Miami Marlins. And if you think it's tough to say nice things about the Miami Marlins, on top of saying nice things about the Atlanta Braves, well, brother, you haven't started cooking yet because we're moving on to the Philadelphia Phillies. Jeff, say something nice about the Philadelphia Phillies. Every time I've been to Philadelphia, I've been impressed with their fans. Yes, I know they're supposed to be obnoxious and loud, and so are we. I think the Phillies fans are real fans. And I think, don't tell them this because they'll deny it. They're nicer than their reputation. That's all I got. They would say, we are obnoxious and disliked. You know that, as they say in Philadelphia, but they were talking to John Adams. Yeah, Philadelphia should get credit for being the home of 1776. That has nothing to do with the Phillies, unfortunately. I'm going to give you something that also has not that much to do with the Philadelphia Phillies in terms of its structure. Certainly not uh, any modernity, although I, I swear I feel hints of it Citizens Bank Park. Scheib Park, a.k.a. Connie Mack Stadium, built for the Philadelphia A's, but later played in by the Philadelphia Phillies. I love looking at pictures of Scheib Park, especially the exterior, but also the interior. I had to triple check how you pronounce this. Cupola. Cupola. That's that little dome that you see at the forefront when you look at the exterior of Scheib Park. I hate to admit this as somebody born in Brooklyn, but if I could go to any ballpark that no longer exists that I never saw, besides the polo grounds, which is a given, it wouldn't be Ebbets Field. It would be Shy Park. I've always wanted to experience it. I don't think it's something that's really inviting now uh, from what I understand about the area, but you know, one of these years I'll probably have to swing by 21st and Lehigh and, and pay homage. I have to admit to a strange fascination with Philadelphia. And it always kind of brings me back, especially with the Phillies, and just in a, a general sense. I'm going to use Nebraska as a way of explaining it. The state of Nebraska doesn't have any professional sports. They once had the Kansas City Omaha Kings, but we're not talking about that right now. Nebraska, I've heard it said, the third largest city on Saturdays in the fall is Cornhusker Stadium, because everybody comes from all over Nebraska, a large state, and fills Cornhusker Stadium. And it got me thinking, if we were in a geographic area that was that big, say Nebraska, we would drive without thinking about it to Cornhusker Stadium. 
following me to go see Nebraska football. Now, we would probably drive further than it would take from where we in New York have lived to get to Philadelphia. So Philadelphia, in some geography, would be a local place for us. It would be our home city, our metropolitan area, and the Philadelphia teams would be our teams. And yet, here they are, and they don't matter to us at all. I mean, other than as the occasional rival, they're just some city from somewhere else. And I don't know if I've articulated that, but there's something about that, that always brings me back and that I, I stop to think about, that I get a kick out of the fact that there is another city with its team so close, and yet we just go on about our business and don't worry about them except for 19 times a year. And I'll give you something more tangible, and I'll just say that wavy P that they wore in the 70s when they changed their uniforms, when they moved into Veterans Stadium and they kept them until the 90s. I always liked that. I didn't like the team. I especially liked it on the uh, the powder blue. So when the Phillies got good, Mike Schmidt was certainly one of the greats of all time and a whole bunch of other really good players who I hated because they were beating the Mets. They were just aesthetically pleasing. I enjoyed watching the Phillies because they were wearing Phillies uniforms. And I guess the current Philly uniforms, if you're a step back from it, they're okay. But I wouldn't go out of my way to say anything uh, super nice about them. There's one other team that I know you wouldn't go out of your way to say anything nice about. Maybe you need to work up to it, and maybe you need me to get you in the mood by talking about them first. Okay, you go first this time. Uh, we're up to the Washington Nationals. Now, for most Mets fans, I'm going to guess you're not crazy about the Washington Nationals. But you like to beat them, especially circa 2015, 2016. We had something of a rivalry now. The Washington Nationals are, are down in flames and rebuilding, or maybe they'll rebuild someday. Not every Mets fan feels this way about the Washington Nationals. I'll be a normal Mets fan, if you will, about this and just talk about them briefly, find a, nice, a few nice things to say. They came into existence, as we know, in 2005, and the nation's capital had a baseball team at Montreal's expense, which was too bad. But it's crazy the nation's capital. Our nation did not have a baseball team. So I'm glad they're there. I was glad in 2005. It was the first year that then XM Radio was sharing major league broadcasts. I found myself listening to Nationals games. And Charlie Slows, who had grown up a Mets fan, had done work for the Mets in the minor leagues as a broadcaster. I'd heard him on Fordham Radio when I was in college. He was there with Mike Breen and Michael Kay. It was a real cradle of future presidents, if you will, of broadcast booths. And I, I enjoyed Charlie Slows doing play-by-play. -play. I enjoyed his little celebration for home runs. Bang, zoom, go the fireworks. Or maybe that was for when they won a game. I, I went to RFK Stadium that first year, thought it had seen better days, but I did see the fireworks. And I'm going to throw in one more nice thing that doesn't have that much to do with the Nationals, but at least they have not torn it down. There's, there's a banner for the D.C. Sports Hall of Fame at Nationals Park, where they list not just baseball players, but those who've had a great impact on sports in Washington, D.C., they had it at RFK Stadium, and one of the names is Gil Hodges, who we know managed the Washington Senators during the 1960s, getting his feet wet so they'd be good and soaked when he came back to New York and managed the Miracle Mets. So I appreciate the name Gil Hodges is in a stadium that isn't just City Field. And by the way, I appreciate that Gary Carter is in their ring of honor. It's kind of grudging. They didn't retire his number or anything, but you see Carter 8 with the Expo logo. 
They could have done that for Rusty Stop too, by the way, because the Expos retired number 10, but eh, they're the Nationals. So what do you want from them? So for all that and for all the fodder they give me in this relationship I have with my friend and co-host, got a little bit of solidarity with the Washington Nationals. But now I'm just going to drop it here on uh, on my co-host's uh, head here. Jeff, Washington Nationals, what can you say that's nice? We're up to the moment where I have to say something nice about the Nationals. And this is why Greg did this whole exercise. He says it's for NL Solidarity. He just is so twisted that he wanted me to have to think of something about the Nationals that's positive. And I got one. Before I mentioned the Jackie Robinson Rotunda at City Field, well, you go inside to go outside an outdoor ballpark. You're outside, you go inside to the Rotunda, and then you go outside again. Imagine going to a ballpark where you're outside and you stay outside. That's the way it is at Nationals Park, because you go through the gates, the plaza is open, and it has these weird statues of Walter Johnson, Josh Gibson, and Frank Howard, better known as a former Mets manager and coach. And it's a nice feeling. You realize you're at a ballpark. That's my nice thing about the Nationals. That's a very nice thing about the Nationals. Let me ask you a bonus question. And this comes from our friend, one of our loyal listeners, Kevin Connolly, brought it up to me recently. We're not going to do it for all 14 teams, but we'll do it for the Nationals. If you had to have and wear one Washington National jersey, had a name and number on the back, whose would it be? Just by law, you have to wear it once, walk around the block, and then, you know, you could burn it if you wanted to. Put it on eBay. Whose would it be? So it couldn't be Carter for the Expos. No. A good good loophole. Your legal mind at work, but no. It would be a Scherzer. Oh, that's good. You got that right away. I think that's a great choice. I was going to go with Frank Robinson, because how could you be against Frank Robinson? Frank Robinson. Here, here, bonus solidarity. Frank Robinson, his final game as a manager in the major leagues was against the Mets at the end of the 2006 season. He comes out. They had a ceremony for him. He gives the most gracious speech you could imagine, and he takes the time to wish Willie Randolph and the Mets well in the upcoming playoffs. I watched it when it happened, but I don't think it really registered on me. I watched it after Frank Robinson passed away, and I was like, that was so good of him. And not just because I'm a Mets fan. It was just incredibly classy move, and it was just an incredibly classy speech in general from somebody who lived a fantastic baseball life, went through hell, made history as the first black manager. And it will always be to the Washington Nationals credit that when they were born, their manager was Frank Robinson, even though they may have eased him out later. But uh, Scherzer 31 on your back. I know you're not really big on the player jerseys, but I'm just grateful that if you ever said, you know what, I got to have a Max Scherzer jersey. Well, you couldn't be 31 if it's a Mets jersey, but you can get yourself a Max Scherzer Mets jersey anytime you want. And I don't think you'd burn that. Well, we hope that you liked this episode, our longest one ever, and we hope that you found it worthwhile. I had a good time. I think Greg did also. We it's a journey, sure. not a destination. The fact that it took a long time to get there. The uh, National League goes back to 1876. It's going to take a while. We hope you thought it was worthwhile. We did. We'll be back next week with a all-star game review and a look ahead to the figurative second half of the season. Until then, I'm Jeff Heisen. I'm National League fan Greg Prince. And as always, let's go Mets.
Copyright 2022, music provided by the Royal Arctic Institute. Check them out on Spotify. It's a journey, not a destination.